All right. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us at Soil for Climate for a live stream discussion with Rob Wolf and Diana Rogers, uh, the creative force behind the Sacred Cow book that's officially being released tomorrow, uh, as well as an upcoming film by the same title uh, that uh, many of us uh, are, have been looking forward to and are very excited about seeing. Uh, I saw the trailer recently and, and um, I thought that was great, or the second trailer, I guess. Uh, there have been two that have come out that I'm aware of. Uh, I'd like to begin today by uh, giving both Rob and Diana uh, an opportunity to introduce themselves, uh, give a, a little bit of uh, background as to uh, how their uh, interest in this field developed and um, how their pursuits uh, led them to realize the need for uh, a work of, of this sort. So uh, Rob, if I would ask you to begin. Sure, I, I was a research biochemist a very long time ago and had a significant health crisis that um, a, a lot of detective work went into figuring out how to deal with that. And ultimately it led me to what, what we might call a paleo diet or ancestral type eating. And that was 22 years ago. Uh, I co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world and had the opportunity to work with just a remarkable number of people on a wide variety of health related issues. And it was pretty stunning the improvements that people would experience. And I, I noticed this process where once people regained their health, then they started kind of looking around and kind of wondering, well, what next? And the what next for me almost immediately was this thought around sustainability. And, and uh, I, on a gut level, suspected that pastured meat and these, these systems that emulate ecology might be remarkably resilient and might be the, the food systems that would steward us for hopefully another thousand or 5,000 years of human existence. But um, that was largely an assumption. But over the course of time, we've been able to piece together a fairly compelling story around both the ethical, environmental, and health considerations of a meat-inclusive diet and food system. And that's kind of been the, the driver for doing all this stuff. And can you tell us about uh, the book that you've written? And I understand it was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, uh, the, uh, the previous books were The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. And The Paleo Solution kind of started the paleo diet genre. There really wasn't a paleo diet genre before that, that particular book. And then Wired to Eat looked at the neuroregulation of appetite, but really riffed off of that kind of low-carb paleo diet theme pretty, pretty strongly. Great. And Diana? Yeah. Um, well, I, I came into this space um, trying to figure out how to solve my health problems. I found out when I was 26 that I had celiac disease, which is a gluten intolerance. And um, I, um, at the same time, had been living on farms. I worked on farms all through high school and college and then moved to a farm with my family um, so it's been 18 years that I've been living on organic uh, vegetable and pasture-raised meat um, farms, first in um, Hamilton, Mass., and then at the current farm. And um, what I started to notice is that the people who are talking about sustainability and diets are generally t pushing a um, you know less meat or no meat type diet. Um, and when I read Rob's book, The Paleo Solution, and, and incorporated those that worldview sort of into the way I ate and focused more on meat and vegetables and a lot less on 
grains and processed foods and those other things that were making me sick, I just had such a remarkable health improvement that I actually went back to school to become a dietitian so that I could help other people eat this way. And, um, and so out of my experience on the farm, plus this health transformation that I had and, and all of the case studies that I was building in my practice through so many people getting healthier, eating, eating this way, um, it occurred to me that nobody is really talking about animals as a piece of the sustainability solution um, or the health solution. So that's why we called it sacred cow because uh, we're very pro fish, we're very pro vegetables, um, but it just seems that cattle are sort of that third rail of nutrition. They're, um, they're beautiful animals. They look a lot like dogs. And so, you know, of all the animals we eat for food, cattle are sort of the biggest, the biggest one people want to stay away from. Um, of course, their cow farts are ruining the environment. And then eating steak is going to give you cancer, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, and everything else. And so it make you morally broken. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so a sacred cow is an idea that is held above uh, any sort of uh, question or criticism. And so that's why we chose the title for this book. And that's why we're focusing specifically on cattle, because um, uh, as you all know, most of our agricultural land is best suited towards grazing. Um, animal products are vital to humans nutritionally. And um, from an ethical standpoint, we really don't feel that you can have a good ethical discussion about whether or not to eat animals without understanding the nutritional importance and the environmental contribution that they can make. Um, and in fact, eliminating animals from our food system could actually cause more harm than good. Hmm. Um, Diana, you're, you're a registered dietitian. And um, I'm wondering, did a lot of this information you learned about the importance of meat, did that come from your formal academic uh, experience or? Uh, could you share with us what, what you did learn uh, when you were studying? Yes, absolutely not. Um, when I was, I went to Simmons uh, University um, to become a dietitian, and a lot of what I was hearing was uh, very typical. It was um, everything in moderation, don't vilify any foods. Um, to eliminate sugar or processed foods from your diet is basically orthorexia, meaning um, basically an eating disorder where you exclude for certain food groups to excess. Try to be perfect. With yes. It. Yeah. Um, but yet they would promote vegan and vegetarian diets as ideal for all stages of life. Um, when many other countries don't, and there's just not really great evidence to, to show that especially a vegan diet is safe for babies, children, teenagers, pregnant women, or lactating moms. Um, and so there's several countries that actually don't advise a vegan diet for those life stages. Um, and I really question um, why, uh, why the U.S. is so biased towards um, meat exclusive diets. But yet when we try to talk about a whole 30 or paleo or keto type diet, it's orthorexia. And so that kind of just got me started in. Um, understanding a why I wanted a private practice only and not to have to report to somebody who um, wanted me pushing that type of a diet on other people, but b that our system is there's a lot of really important decisions being made from a non science evidence based background um, that affect policy. So, for example, with WIC, uh, no meat available on WIC, 
um, with the um, HIP program in Boston area. Uh, so that, that's the program at farmers markets where uh, folks can get an extra 40 to $80 to spend um, at the farmers markets, not, not including meat, right? So they can get um, $6 a pint organic raspberries or you know, a $10 bag of organic mesclun mix, but they can't buy uh, Kate Stillman's ground beef or liver products. And if we're trying to really have a conversation about how are we gonna nourish people from our local food system who are food insecure, it's not gonna be with gourmet salad mix and organic raspberries, it's gonna be with animal products. And so there just doesn't seem to be a lot of people really fighting for the benefit of animal products. And in fact, quite a few very important people are are pushing a, a very meat restrictive diet worldwide. And I think that that's very dangerous. Right, and for viewers who may not know, WIC uh, stands for Women, Infants and Children uh, program, the federal program, uh, and uh, the Eat Lancet diet, um, I'm presuming is what you're referring to, at least most recently, that was uh, put forth in January, 2019. And as many who work in the nutrition community have pointed out, uh, there were many flaws in the diet in terms of meeting uh, humans' nutritional requirements. Um, Rob, uh, if I could ask you, uh, could you perhaps give some insight into uh, how our diet standards, nutritional standards became so flawed? And, and I understand a lot of it dates back uh, not only to Ansel Key's work in the 1950s with the, um, the, the lipid uh, heart disease uh, hypothesis, that much re more uh, modern research has, has disproven and, and found that he was very much cherry picking his research as to which countries he was looking at the data from and so forth. Uh, but it even dates back even prior to that. If, if you could maybe give us uh, a little bit of an insight into, into how the, the dietary guidelines uh, came into being as we know them today. Yeah, Diana is a little bit more of an expert on the, the deeper history on that, like with the, the Seventh-day Adventists and their influence on nutrition writ large. But that, that Ansel Keys period is really interesting. That post-World War II period is when we began industrializing the food system. Like there was a, a, a campaign term, a, a chicken in every pot. And prior to the industrialization of the food system, Chicken was a, a rare, rarely consumed item because ecologically, uh, an animal like that plays a very tertiary role relative to grazing animals. Like grazing animals were, were largely the, the entities that, that provided the bulk of calories from animal products. So it's an interesting point in history. And as you pointed out, the Ansel Keys story was interesting in that it, it challenged the, the traditional food perspective. You know, we uh, historically people ate things like lard and butter and meat. And this really called that idea into question, um, not really with particularly good science. Even at the time, scientists said that the data was not particularly good and not robust and it wasn't worthy of, of you know, creating broad ranging uh, uh, dietary change. But within the McGovern Commission, uh, this Senator George McGovern said something to the effect that although scientists have the luxury of waiting for all the data to be in, senators have to act. And so they acted. And there's great lessons to be learned from this, like making broad ranging decisions on sociopolitical, economic, environmental related topics with, with faulty information can lead to catastrophic problems. So 
We kind of have that going on. And then peripheral to that, right around this, this time, a bit later, uh, Richard Nixon was looking to get reelected. And he really wasn't doing all that well uh, in the polling. And he needed a, a relatively conservative group of people that would rally behind his cause. And what he focused on was expanding the subsidies program for farmers. And this actually worked pretty well. It got him reelected. It um, ramped up subsidies programs. The subsidies that underwrote the World War I, World War II efforts largely were dismantled, although they were not completely taken offline. It, but it was with this uh, ramping up of, of activity on the part of uh, President Richard Nixon that the, the perfect storm of a dietary policy focusing on low-fat, high-carb, with a combination of the government now subsidizing the production of huge amounts of grains and things that could get converted into seed oils. Um, this was the beginning of the junk food industry. And so long as it was low fat and things were in low saturated fat, then it was generally regarded as, as being a, a healthy option. And it was interesting right around this time, uh, we really figured out a way of cheaply industrializing the production of high fructose corn syrup. And so this, the, you know, this came online, the production of, of uh, uh, saturated fat in the form of trans fats by hydrogenating these cheap vegetable oils. This came online. Antibiotics so for chickens. antibiotics for chickens, which allowed us to uh, stick these animals in, in you, you know, we couldn't dream of doing these confined feeding scenarios prior to ubiquitous antibiotic use. And as an aside, this is some work that Diana has done if we lose, this is one of the interesting things about the industrial food system writ large. If we destroy our ability for antibiotics to work, the industrial food system on the animal side will absolutely collapse and probably human population will collapse because we're no longer going to have that, that tool to use. So there's, there's just some really fascinating confluences of, you know, uh, political ideas, poor research, um, scientific uh, progress that left us with our modern industrial food system. Thank you. Um, and uh, Diana, if you could talk um, a little bit about uh, the inadequacies in the typical American diet today. Uh, you know, I understand just from my own research, um, you know, part of the issue is that food doesn't have anywhere near the nutritional content that it had before. And, and that's combined with the, um, the, omnipresence, I guess, of, uh, of glyphosate, which is a powerful chelating agent, a disruptor, uh, because it's an antibiotic in the, uh, in the, the human gut biome, uh, how that can cause disruptions. But, but if you could um, elaborate perhaps on these topics or, or other aspects, and um, as well as uh, with an eye toward how more better meat consumption can begin to address, you know, these shortages and deficiencies. Yeah, most of the focus that we um, have in the book is around the um, overconsumption of hyperpalatable ultra-processed foods. And so these foods are designed to kind of bypass the um, natural security, uh, security, satiety signaling that we have in our brains that tell us to stop eating. Um, and so, you know, there's really good examples of this with Pringles, you know, once you pop, you can't stop. 
Um, there's really smart people working at these companies, making sure that these foods are as addictive and maximally pleasurable as possible. Um, and at the same time, they're, they're ultra processed, they're um, highly profitable for these companies to make. And it's the entire middle of the grocery store. And so what we've seen since 1970 is a reduction in our spending on meat, um, a reduction in uh, our consumption of red meat. We are eating more chicken, but that's because of, you know, cheaper processes to, I mean, it should not cost $3 a pound or whatever it is to, to buy a chicken. Um, that's, it's ridiculous. Um, people are eating too many calories and not enough nutrition. That's, that's the bottom line. And so we have a population in the U S where 70% of Americans are overweight or obese, and yet they're nutrient deficient or have insufficiencies with nutrients. And some of those key nutrients are B12, iron, zinc, things that can be found best in animal products. And so what we see when people eliminate largely all of these ultra processed foods and focus on whole foods. So, you know, meats, vegetables, some fruits some nuts, um, healthy fats that are in their whole form, not the ultra processed form, um, their weight regulates, their blood sugar regulates, and they can get back to a much healthier state. Uh, those aches and pains that we all think that are so um, ubiquitous with aging actually don't have to be there. So um, Rob and I are way older than we look. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, diet plays a massive role in aging, um, in how your brain works, in how you feel every day, in how you sleep. And um, so the biggest problem we have in our food system right now is the overconsumption of these, um, you know, disgusting foods that really are completely unnatural to the human species. Um, we've never before had to push food away. We're not, our bodies aren't meant to, our brains aren't wired to stop eating food, you know, out in the, in the wild. No animal is like trying to, oh gosh, I can't eat any more raspberries because I'm going to get fat, you know? Um, and so that's just not part of our makeup is to, is to stop or push away delicious food. Um, we're wired to seek out as many different options as possible because that's how we got um, all the vitamins and, and minerals that we needed was, you know, a little bit of berries from this bush, a little bit of berries from this bush, some roots from here, some bunny from this one, you know, like just mixing it up and, and eating a large variety. But unfortunately now we have millions of options of hyper palatable, very inexpensive, delicious food at any time available at convenience stores. You don't even have to get out of your car to get it. Um, and that's the big problem with our food system. I imagine you'd agree that there's no one single diet that's perfect for everyone. Um, but that said, could you uh, perhaps give some rough guidelines as to how much meat uh, people should be eating and what you would recommend along those lines? Well, uh, so yeah, there is no one perfect diet, but we there are some general rules that Rob and I outline in the book in the eat like a nutrivore section. So if you take if you take uh, emotion out completely and just look at nutrient density of the food that you're eating, um, you know, trying to hit some, some basic protein goals, some basic uh, carbohydrate goals, and then 
trying to look at your uh, vitamins and minerals. Um, and we recommend people track it in a program called chronometer. Chronometer. <laughs> chronometer. I always pronounce it incorrectly. Um, which is a great tool because um, unlike some of the other calorie tracking tools, chronometer actually shows you how much iron you're eating and, and all those things. Um, as far as protein intake across the board, the RDA for protein is, is very low and it's not the optimal amount. It is the, the, the baseline that you need to avoid disease. And so uh, I did a big dive into how the RDA was formed. It was basically based on these, they're called nitrogen balance study, uh, studies, which look at, you know, nitrogen, nitrogen out, and then when it's at zero, we're good. Um, but that really discounts the value of protein um, to the body. It's the most satiating macronutrient. So if you increase someone's protein, they're going to be more full and they're likely to not eat later in the day. So protein is really the master satiety regulator. Um, and that's why, you know, like in labs, we see calorie restriction working. We see lots of different types of diets working, but out in the wild, people eat when they're hungry. And so the biggest gift we can give people is to naturally help them not be as hungry anymore. And that comes from eating protein. Um, and then animal protein is the most nutrient dense form of protein you can get and it has the least amount of calories. So 30 grams of protein, you can get that in about 200 calories worth of beef, where you're getting some iron, some B12, some zinc, some, some other really important nutrients. And it's the most bioavailable form of protein. Or if we were to look at beans and rice, um, you would need 730 calories worth of beans and rice. Uh, so that's significantly more than 200. Um, and you're still not going to hit anywhere close to the vitamins and minerals that you would get in a small piece of beef. Um, and then when we look at the, the plant-based options like Beyond Burger, Beyond Burger is twice as expensive as organic grass-fed beef when you go to walmart.com and look it up. Um, and I don't see anything regenerative at all about the processes uh, going into making these lab meats or beyond impossible burgers, anything like that. Um, and unfortunately the, what we're hearing is it's animals versus meat when it should be industrial food versus this other system. And, um, you know, we, we, we don't think that everyone needs to, you know, eat only meat all the time. We don't think it needs to be only regenerative all the time. There's a lot of nuance here. Um, and we don't even think we have all the answers. We don't think, you know, it has to be holistic management or nothing. Um, we're just making some suggestions on how people can move in a better direction because we're ruining our soil, as you know, and we're um, poisoning the environment. We're just not going to have a place to come back to to grow food in several hundred years if we don't change how we're doing things. Right. The issue isn't animals versus meat. It's how the meat is produced, how the, the, the plants are grown, or um, you know, whether we eat plants or meat, they both need to come from regenerative processes. Um, uh, Rob, I, I'm wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, what you've seen in terms of um, chronic diseases being reversed and people, people's health being restored as a result of, it, of adopting better diets and um, maybe some experiences or uh, uh, instances that, that you've heard of that, that you can share. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, 
it's so ubiquitous that it starts sounding a little bit incredible. I, I co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world and then worked for CrossFit for a number of years and got to work with just tens of thousands of people. And we saw folks with GI problems, neurological problems, systemic inflammatory issues. And when they adopted something that looked like a, 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 you know ancestral eating, it was shocking the improvements in their, their health. Um, fertility issues on both male and female side, like in our gym, we warned people, <laughs> you will get pregnant or you will get somebody pregnant in here. Like they started working out, they started eating better. We had people that had hundreds of thousands of dollars on in vitro fertilization, couldn't get pregnant. The woman is mid forties. They start working out with us, change their diet. They got pregnant. And so we saw some fascinating things like that. And then I had a really interesting opportunity. We moved from Chico, California to Reno, Nevada, almost 10 years ago. And when I got there, I got to interact and, and actually became part of the board of directors of a medical clinic that worked tightly with the local police, military, and fire. And they did a pilot study where they identified people at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, got them on some form of kind of a lowish carb paleo type diet. We modified their sleep and exercise as best we could, but changed off the changes in their, their blood work alone. It's estimated that pilot study saved the city of Reno about $22 million with a 33 to one return on investment. And we've been working to scale this over time. We've had some modest success taking this into uh, self-insured captives, companies that are, are are doing their their insurance in-house and they're really facing the real costs of this exponentially increasing healthcare burden. And so we've had some really remarkable success in those regards. Uh, there's Verda Health, which is a, a venture-backed company which uses a ketogenic diet to treat type 2 diabetes. And their results have been nothing short of remarkable. Uh, I worked for over two years with the Chickasaw Nation, helping them to develop a, a program for their their people that is um, not dissimilar from the Verta program, but it integrates, ironically, everything from their food production to uh, doctor's offices to gyms and the overall community, because this is really what you have to do. It can't be a parts and pieces approach like all of this fits together. So we've had some really cool stuff. We've had some interesting examples of success. Um, it, it's enough to continue to have some hope, but man, we've definitely had, had our work cut out for us trying to, uh, you know, to battle the things like eat Lancet and dictates coming out of the world health organization and, and things like that. Well, based on the experience that you shared, it certainly sounds like the, um, the, the budget deficit of the United States, you know, a tremendous amount of money, uh, could be saved if, if this were implemented at a national scale and, Maybe you could um, touch a little bit on some of the reasons uh, why we haven't seen uh, support for a program like this at the national level and uh, perhaps who some of the, the partners are behind um, uh, an attempt like Eat Lancet uh, to try to shift our, our diets you know, in a direction away from what you're proposing. Uh, I know there are processed food manufacturers and sugar companies, and, but... Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. Like the the uh, a talk that I gave in 2009 mentioned a congressional budget office study that suggested that by 2030 2035 the U.S. would be effectively bankrupt from diabetes related costs. Mm -hmm. And so I've been ringing this bell for 
quite some time. Um, we do get into a quagmire, though, about, well, what do you do to address this problem? You can reverse type 2 diabetes and you can lose weight on a low fat diet, you know, like a vegan, vegetarian or, or generally mixed food, low fat diet. But it's, it's tough. I would argue that the, the studies suggest that controlling carbohydrate intake leads to better appetite control and then compliance is better. But still, compliance broadly stinks. Like the, the likelihood of people starting and failing diets, it, like if you could bet money on that, you would make money all day long. Like it's, it's pretty likely that people are not going to be successful with dietary change. There's social issues, economic issues, the, the information that we see in the daily headlines, you know, meat is going to give you cancer, meat will give you cardiovascular disease. So we have some super mixed messages out there. So it, uh, I, I could get kind of Alex Jones uh, conspiracy theory about some of it. I think a lot of it is just kind of dumb luck, honestly. And, and uh, a lot of the situation that we're we're in wasn't engineered this way, but people figured out how to profiteer from it. And this is just kind of the, the situation that we have. Um, I would love that the, if there were 10 different American medical associations and all of them competed against one another, I would love for our instead, uh, what insurance used to be was a backstop against a, a catastrophic event and we should pay day to day for what our general healthcare needs are. This is what we did up until about right around the post-World War II period when um, part of our, the, the way that our current healthcare system in the United States came into being is that during World War II, there were wage freezes in the United States because they didn't want people here getting paid more than our, our GIs abroad fighting this war. But companies found a way to work around that. They would incentivize people via insurance and, and different non-salary-based uh, in, enticements. And this was the beginning of the employer-based health insurance model. And it created this third-party system where you've got a consumer, a doctor, and an insurance provider all kind of working at e against each other's you know, best interests. If we bought tomatoes under a guideline like this, they would be six thousand dollars a pound. Like uh, these, this is the only other systems like this that we see is like the military, and that's why toilet seats cost as much as what they they do because the third party payer system. There's no real skin in the game. There's no accountability. And unpacking that topic is nearly career suicide these days. Like you know, broaching this topic of needing skin in the game, needing personal accountability, like you're a horrible human being suggesting things like that. But it's a critical piece of, of this overall kind of story. And I've been working on scaling both the, the medical risk assessment side, but also looking at some payment solution options based around the, the MediShare model, which has been very popular within different religious circles but because of some provisions that have been enacted uh, early in 2019, you can now have secular organizations that offer these health shares or, or MediShares as well. So that's definitely been something I've, I've worked towards. Thank you. Um, we are uh, getting a number of questions that, and I wanna to get to them in a moment, but before we do, uh, I, I'd like to touch a little bit uh, with you, Diana, on um, the environmental aspects uh, of, of livestock and how important it is uh, for building soil, and particularly if you could 
uh, as you mentioned earlier, the, the methane issue, uh, if you could um, perhaps shed a little bit of insight on that based on what you've learned from your research, and, and then we'll get to some questions. Sure, and I know that your audience is pretty well versed in this, but um, but I'll go through it anyway because uh, sometimes even if you know it, it's it can be hard to explain it to others. Um, and so I, I did try to watch how people were explaining it many different ways in order for me to feel like I had a good way of explaining it to people that maybe didn't have a master's in soil science or something like that. Um, so we have two two problems going on with uh, greenhouse gas. Um, measuring when it comes to cattle. One is that it's apples to oranges when you're talking about biogenic methane, which is part of a methane cycle versus the methane and um, CO2 from fossil fuels, which are a one-way street straight into the atmosphere. So fossil fuels are extracting ancient locked carbon and methane and just pumping it straight up. There's nothing in that equation to balance it out. When we talk about ruminant animals um, or any other naturally methane producing system in, in nature, um, when the cattle breathe out methane, CH4, it goes up into the atmosphere, it lives for about 10 years before it's then converted into H2O and CO2. The water becomes part of the water cycle, some of that comes down as rain, which we need. Uh, the CO2 is taken up by plants. The O2 comes back up as oxygen, which we breathe. The carbon then is brought down into uh, the roots and is uh, exchanged with microorganisms and fungal networks for nutrients that the plant needs in, in this beautiful symbiotic relationship. And some of that carbon actually gets sequestered in the soil uh, when the roots die and then grow back again. And that can only happen in a system where uh, there's a nice balance, not too much grazing, not too little grazing. Um, and that's why mob grazing or holistic management is such a powerful tool because it mimics what uh, grazing animals do in nature when um, you imagine the Serengeti and a large herd of wildebeests, uh, they're not just all speckled all over the place grazing all by themselves. They're bunched together, uh, intensively grazing one area, grazing everything down. And that's because there's, there's protection in bunching together like that from uh, a wolf or a lion or something that's, that's in the bushes. Um, and then the second thing is they're moving constantly. And that's because if you stay in one place too long, you're going to get eaten. Um, these animals, uh, their predators are keeping the populations down by calling the, the sick ones and um, the weaker ones. And so we've got this nice equilibrium. And so the predators are actually a key piece in keeping grasslands healthy. Uh, we can mimic that. Uh, we don't need wolves. Um, well, I guess we need some wolves. <laughs> At least one. Yeah. Um, but we can mimic that with uh, using, you know, bunching the animals and dividing up our pastures and using electric fencing to uh, keep them bunched together, indiscrim indiscriminate grazing all the way down, and then move them off the land so that the land has a chance to rest. Um, and when you guys see the film, we visited several farms and researchers that are doing just this. So we visited with Jason Roundtree at Michigan State, who's actually measuring methane output and different forages that might reduce methane, things like chicory. 
Um, he's also involved in several of the papers out there showing that cattle can be a net carbon gain. We also visited with Joel Salatin. We visited with um, Alejandro Carrillo down in um, Las Damas Ranch in uh, Chihuahua, Mexico. Uh, and that was an amazing trip because not only was it a brittle environment that only gets 10 inches of rain a year, that he's able to capture better now because of the grasses that he's been able to produce just with cattle managed the proper way. Um, but he's also part of a collective of farmers in northern Mexico that are regenerating over a million acres back into grasslands, which is what it was before it, you know, became this barren wasteland, which is what it looks like today in most places in the state of Chihuahua. Um, and so and he's working with bird organizations because now he's providing habitat for migratory bird populations that are able to come and stop at his ranch on their way down where they didn't have the proper habitat before. So, um, so it's way beyond just carbon, right? It's way beyond just greenhouse gases. It's about ecosystem function. Um, but then getting back to you know, all right, so we've got biogenic versus uh, fossil fuel carbon emissions. But then we also have um, when uh, comparing cattle to transportation, um, really skewed numbers. So the numbers that came out of Livestock's Long Shadow were looking at the full life cycle assessment of, of beef production. So growing the food, transporting that food, uh, raising the cattle, transporting the cattle, processing the cattle, getting that beef to your door, right? That entire life cycle of what it takes versus uh, transportation, which it doesn't exist. There is no life cycle assessment out there for the transportation industry. And so they were just comparing tailpipe emissions. So what's coming out of, of the cars or planes, but not all the energy used in building the planes, mining all the materials, the transporting the planes or cars to their final destination. That's a very large piece of the footprint that was missing in that calculation. So uh, worldwide, when you look at uh, just emissions from, from cattle versus transportation, we have 5% coming from cattle. That's worldwide. In the US, it's only 2%. And worldwide, transportation is 14% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So the claims that cattle uh, are worse than the transportation sector are completely bogus. Um, and again, it's not even looking at the same type of carbon. So, um, you know, when, when we reduce it to, we need things with the least amount of methane, then we get into problems where the Green Party in Sweden proposed we kill all the moose because they emit methane or um, you know, getting all the mussels off the ocean floor because mussels produce methane. Um, so we need to be looking at this from an ecological whole systems perspective, but then we also have to really weigh in the nutritional contribution that animal products make to, to humans too, um, because that can't be discounted. We, the animal products are hugely important to the health of humans. Um, and, you know, especially when we're looking at populations that uh, rely on animals for their livelihood and for their nutrition, where they can't grow crops or it's too risky or they can't own land uh, to grow crops, they absolutely have to have livestock in the mix. And so to have, you know, people with the privilege to be able to push away meat 
dictating to everybody else that they should be reducing their meat or eliminating meat from their diets is actually uh, quite an elitist um, position. Hmm. I, I would add here that whenever people talk about uh, limiting methane emissions, we never hear about the, the horse population in the United States, which I believe outnumber cattle, or uh, suggesting that we do away with rice paddies all over the world, which are another very significant contributor. Although I think people might wish to get rid of the termites that also contribute quite a bit of methane. But that's right. um, and with regard to having meat in the diet, I'll just put a plug in here for the program that uh, Seth and I are doing with the Maasai community in Kenya with their traditional diet has been meat, milk and blood for thousands of years. And the incidence of Western diseases is, is practically non-existent. Um, they're really in tremendous health. They have great longevity. And because of the rainfall in their part of the world, it's impossible for them to grow crops in the way that we think of here. And so it, it just, in imagining a diet like that for so many peoples around the world is just completely un unfeasible. Well, and it, it's, uh, it's uh, not to interrupt you, but it, you know, in this time of uh, social justice issues and privilege and whatnot, in rightfully taking important place, but what this kind of globalized food system means is that the Maasai should abandon their traditional ways of feeding themselves and become dependent on the agricultural excess of the United States or Europe, because that is literally the only option. And, you know, interestingly, the uh, for us, some of the greatest um, rays of hope have been coming from pushback from the developing world, where these people are like, we don't have all the infrastructure and all the funny money things you guys can do with a, a global reserve currency and stuff like that. We have to take care of ourselves. And so it, it's, it, it's a, it's a social justice topic that is virtually completely ignored is this forcing of a largely white, largely Western vegan centric worldview of the way that we should feed ourselves on the rest of the planet. Yeah, and when we look at, you know, the evidence out there, uh, there's only one randomized control trial looking at uh, what happens with kids when you feed them more meat versus uh, less meat. And in this one particular study, uh, the there was a group that got a meat supplement, a group that got extra calories, and a group that got just a dairy supplement um, onto their already, um, you know, not fantastic diet. Uh, and the meat group excelled physically, academically, and behaviorally in, in all the three areas that they were measuring. And interestingly, the next best group was the over-calories group. Uh, the dairy group perform performed the worst in, in that scenario. And that could partly be because dairy inhibits iron absorption, which kids need to grow and, um, you know, to, to grow healthy brains as well. Uh, but there are a lot of people that that think that just a little supplement of milk is enough. And while um, I don't think milk is necessarily a bad food for uh, kids, it's certainly not something that should be used to replace meat in the diet. So we absolutely have to be having uh, meat. And what we see, there was a good article in The Economist um, talking about uh, when some of these countries that have been traditionally low in meat just because of resources, uh, as their cultures have been getting um, more income and eating more meat, uh, the GDP is growing, their uh, academics are growing with the kids. And so it's actually giving a lot of people a leg up in the world. Right. Uh, for those of us just joining us now, we're here with Rob 
Wolf and Diana Rogers, uh, co-authors of the book uh, Sacred Cow that is uh, officially being published tomorrow. Uh, for those of you who order the book today or tomorrow and provide uh, the receipt um, to um, the Sacred Cow website, you can get a number of uh, benefits and a, a sneak preview of their upcoming film by the same title. Uh, we'll have the link available if it's not already in the comments. So uh, I encourage you all to purchase the book. And um, we have a copy. He said, hold up a copy. Do you have a copy of it you want to show us there? Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Nice to see. <laughs> and we really filled it with a lot of the graphics that I've been using on Instagram to help people understand it. So it's not this super academic dry. And we tried to make it kind of funny and a little entertaining too. So um, hopefully it's not, it's not too painful of a read for people. <laughs> I've, I've certainly learned a lot from your work, Diana. Um, particularly, uh, most recently, the issue about how much water is used uh, to produce meat. And I don't want to dwell on this point, but it, you know, viewers should know that the statistics include the amount of rainfall that fall on the crops, you know, that are fed to the animals, rain that would have fallen anyway. So in, in a way, it seems very disingenuous um, to include that. Uh, as well, water that's used by a cow isn't used up the way that a fossil fuel is. It's part of the water cycle. So it goes back, if anything value added into the ground is, is urine with the fertilizer, uh, into the meat that we consume or respired back into the air and so on. So there, there are so many nuances, I think, that are important to uh, get to. We don't have time for all of them. Um, but uh, there have been quite a few comments and questions. So let me just put these out there and then uh, either of you can decide how you'd like to respond to them. Uh, the first question is, uh, how do you see these principles applying to the dairy industry? And, uh, and what, what dairy products fit into the paleo diet mindset? Um, I'll tackle the dietary mindset. My, my greasy used car salesman pitch is for people to try something that looks like a paleo diet, no grains, no legumes, no dairy, do that for 30 days, reintroduce those foods and see how you do. And if you do well with them, great. If you don't, then, then you know, you do the cost benefit analysis of whether or not you enjoy them so much that you still want to suffer the the health consequences. It's interesting for me, historically, bovine dairy has given me acne and joint problems. I eat fewer vegetables than I used to in the past. I'm not 100% carnivore, but I've, I've kind of scooted a little bit more that direction. And so long as I don't eat vegetables that irritate my gut, I have absolutely no problems with dairy. Like I can eat it with reckless abandon now. So even for me, like that, that story has changed over time. Um, yeah. And then as far as the sustainability piece, um, definitely. I mean, I've been to Maple Hill Creamery, um, but we do, you know, from a nutrition standpoint, should acknowledge that worldwide recommendations that we drink more milk than we eat meat is really unfair because there's most humans don't have the ability to break down dairy products effectively. A lot of people are lactose intolerant. A lot of cultures are. Um, and so it was definitely tone deaf to be, um, uh, of Walter Willett to be recommending that, you know, the world, uh, drink more dairy than, than consume meat products for sure. Um, so I personally don't drink milk. I eat a little cheese. Um, sometimes, um, my kids drink a ton of milk. They love milk. Um, but they also eat a lot of other really good things too. Uh, so I think it's just individual whether or not milk works for you. And I think it can be done in a sustainable way, but a lot of the dairy, um, is quite problematic, um, from an ethical perspective and from an environmental perspective. 
Um, I think the dairy industry has has a little ways to go. Um, how can consumers be assured that the food that they're, they're eating is, is nutrient dense? Um, I understand that carrots, for example, I had some last week, they were organic from California. I might as well have been eating orange cardboard. I mean, they were completely flavorless. So um, is, is that our best clue as to how the food tastes or is there a, are there tests being done or any certification? You know, how can consumers know that they're getting high quality food? Man, that's a, a good one. I mean, on, on the one hand, we have like the USDA nutrient databases, which do an average of what the nutritional profile of various foods are. Um, there's always huge caveats with that, you know, like how big is an apple when you're considering its nutrient quality? Um, how much water does it have? So like if you're weighing it, you know, how much, is it, how much apple is there versus water and whatnot? I mean, it, at the end of the day, I feel like some of that gets out into the weeds. We know for sure that fruits and vegetables are more nutritious than like bagels and cereal. And so it, in, it, in particular, if, if we make meat a, a pretty good, you know, staple or, or inclusive part, meat, seafood, shellfish, if we're, if we're really ticking the box there, then the rest of it, I wouldn't say doesn't matter. But, you know, again, we understand that fruits and vegetables are pretty nutrient dense. Spices and herbs are shockingly nutrient dense, like things like pesto and, and uh, chimichurri and stuff like that are amazingly nutrient dense. And so you can even take some kind of suboptimal foods and prop them up pretty, pretty easily by doing that. But there's no a uh, Star Trek type scanner that can, you know, look at this tomato versus that tomato and, and tell you it's, it's better or worse. I would agree that uh, flavor is a, a decent indicator here, but this stuff gets a little bit down, in my opinion, down the somewhat elitist track of like, you have a, a family of four living at the margins. Um, is it more important for those folks, folks to eat meat and fruits and vegetables and do the best job they can with that? Or do we make the, the standards so elitist that they, they just kind of opt out and they're like, okay, I'm going to eat a bagel and forget it. So I, I do have some, some caution in, in that regard. Yeah. And I would just add to that, that we don't really have any studies um, showing the same crop on the, I actually pinged Matt about this, um, the same crop on the same piece of land, comparing it from 1950 to today. We don't, we don't have those studies out there. Um, there is some evidence that in general, nutrient values of your average carrot compared to your, the average carrot in 1950s is, um, is lower. But um, I'm with Rob in the fact that we need to work on people's overall diet and just cut out the processed foods and sugars and sodas and ice creams and get people back to eating whole foods um, from their like most whole original form, that's the best way to go. Not, um, you know, should I have this carrot or this carrot? It's, you know, when you're, when you're focusing too micro, I mean, it's, it's really easy. Everyone wants like, is it goji berries? Is that going to be my, my ticket to longevity and, and six pack abs? And it's like, that would be really, that's a really easy thing to want to, to happen. Um, but that's just not how it works. It's every day eating a kind of boring diet that's, you know, just largely, um, you know, some animal products with some plant products thrown in there too. 
movement, good sleep, sunlight, sunlight. Um, community. Those, those are the things that are going to have the biggest impact, not, uh, you know, switching from one carrot to the other. Um, I have heard about this. Uh, there is some kind of Star trek uh laser scanner out there, supposedly. Um, by it, it's it's like Theranos and Ubiome. It's a yeah. Sham. Yeah. I, I haven't seen it. I don't understand the technology of it. Something with radio frequency waves of of minerals and as, stuff as, like that. But as, it, I have a really hard time believing that it's. Um, as someone who was an analytical chemist, um, I will short that company if it ever goes public because they're going to have a. a a very brief run there there's no way that that stuff works at that level and it's yeah. also just a, such a distraction from yeah. the big problem which is just don't eat the potato chips yeah yeah uh, I'm, I'm holding out for the uh, tricorder from star trek personally <laughs> waiting for that we better live a long time then because that is a ways down the road yeah well, i'm working on my health um i did get a, a fact check from uh, frank tuton i just want to thank him uh, who said that we have about one-tenth of the number of horses in the U.S. as livestock. So, Frank, thank you for that correction. Um, and uh, an, an issue I'd like to bring up just very quickly uh, is sometimes people ask, you know, is there enough land for everybody to be eating grass-fed meat? And this is actually a topic that I've studied quite a bit. And what many don't seem to realize is that with improved gra grazing practices, we can double, triple, uh, or in extreme cases, increase by as many as tenfold the number of animals that are grazing on, on land, particularly if the land begins as completely degraded and with billions of acres, literally, of degraded grasslands around the world. Um, I've heard Alan Savory say we need to at least double our livestock population globally uh, to, to heal the environment. And, and so often the estimates that we see uh, pertain only to land presently being used for grazing. They don't take into account all of the land around the world that we need to restore the wildlife habitat and to address the biodiversity and extinction crises and so on. Um, anyway, that's, that's my editorial point. Yep. And, uh, another question that we've had come in is uh, on the dairy topic. Uh, do you share the view that A2 protein uh, variation from bovine is of superior quality and ease of digestibility? Should we see more A2 milk? I mean, in general, my recommendation for folks is that if they want to lose weight and feel better, drinking milk is probably not going to help them achieve those goals because milk is um, relatively low in protein compared to, um, you know, how much sugar and fat is in it. And it's just really high in calories for there, there's better ways to get your nutrients than drinking milk. Um, and and so, you know, we didn't dive too deeply into the A2 protein. I have heard that A2 milk is more digestible, but um, I, 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 in general, I don't recommend most grown-ups drink glasses of milk, like maybe some fermented dairy, some cheese and yogurt, and things like that. But yeah, it, it, dairy has an amazing capacity for taking small mammals and making them big mammals. Yeah, and I don't know that we all need to aspire to the the goal of being a big mammal. So. Uh, I, I'm a bit, again, big fan of uh, uh, yogurts and some, some, you know, good quality cheeses and stuff like that. But there, there's kind of more nutrient dense items that we can track down than that. And uh, again, also on the tolerance intolerance story, this is as easy as a 30 day elimination process. Pull all of it out, uh, eat, you know, kind of a paleoist type, type diet, reintroduce and see how you do. And if you end up 
oh man, I, the post-nasal drip came back, the GI problems came back, then you, you just kind of eliminate that. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's telling though, people get very um, protective about their dairy. There are casomorphins in dairy that uh, hit the, the uh, dopamine receptors, both in the gut and influence the brain. So it's got a, a wee bit of an addictive quality to it. So this is, this is um, like if, if we were having a conversation with vegans, it, it would be trying to get them off sugar and we would have all kinds right. of in uh, bread and all kinds of justification around, well, if we leavened it or did this. And, and so within this more um, animal product centric community, the, uh, the negotiating that happens around cheese and dairy, it's kind of like talking to kids about their homework. Like there's all kinds of negotiating and creativity that, that kind of pops up around it. But for me, at the end of the day, it's experiment and see how you do with it. And we've just seen so many people do better with either less or, or, it, you know, like, sheep or goat dairy instead of bovine dairy. And in, in many cases, just eliminating dairy products altogether. Not everybody, but a lot of people. Um, uh, another issue uh, that often comes up is that of 100% uh, grass-fed meat uh, uh, versus uh, grain-finished meat, which is you know, so much more affordable for many people. It's perhaps the only option that they have. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the, the nutrient differences in, in what your thoughts are on that. This is where this community gets really mad at us. And this is where we've, we've had people want to, to just lambast us because we looked at every scrap of data available and we tortured the data every imaginable way because for our narrative, it would be great to say that pastured meat is more ethical, better for the environment, and it is orders of magnitude better nutrition. And that's just simply not the case. The reality, the thing that occurred to us, and in, in, in we started off the book with our, our outline, grass-fed meat is more nutritious than conventional meat. And then when we actually researched it, the difference between the two was tiny. And people will get wrapped around the axle of the omega-3 differences between pastured meat versus conventional meat. And I believe it's like a pinky-sized piece of, of salmon has more omega-3s than like eight pounds of beef. And then if you have one handful of almonds, you, un you undid that whole omega-3, omega-6 balance. The reality is that meat across the board is remarkably nutritious. Like that's really the thing. And something that folks forget is even the, the worst kind of CAFO beef spends 85 or 90% of its life on grass. And then they're still remarkably good at upcycling nutrients and, and making very good uh, nutrient dense products. But I, I got to say the regenerative ag folks kind of want to uh, hang us up from a yardarm talking about this. But it, 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 again, it was, it was a topic that we would have loved to have gone a different direction. Like it would have fit the narrative much more succinctly if we could say, oh yeah, unemphatically it is more nutritious. And I'll fully acknowledge that some bioaccumulation issues like atrazine or, or, um, you know, toxic mold products being fed into animals, bioaccumulating, those things may be legitimate issues, but that's a completely separate issue from nutrition. Nutrition is essential amino acids, essential fatty acids, vitamins, and minerals. And, and that's really what that part boils down to. And there's, there's just not that big of a difference. Um, unfortunately, do you want to add anything else there? Or? Well, it's, I'll, I'll just add that, you know, well, people will say, okay, but it's the ratio. 
but that it's it's because of the ratio and so i just try to of omega-3 to omega-6 yes yeah. and so i just try to explain that um uh first of all if 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 we were to look at a dollar bill um and that represented all the fats in steak uh about one penny of that would be the omega-3s and so even if grass-fed beef had twice which some studies show other studies don't two pennies is twice as much as one penny but it's not a lot of money it's not you're not going to change your overall health by much if you simply switch to grass-fed beef but then eat the same crappy diet um uh yes and i i'm seeing this question from seth right here what about the secondary the polyphenols and tannins Fred Provenza would likely disagree, but I didn't see any hard evidence that he was showing. So uh, I, in humans, when we consider our overall diet, the best way to reduce your omega-6s and increase your omega-3s is to eliminate processed foods and sugars, things that have high amounts of omega-6s, and to increase things that have omega-3s, which is mackerel, salmon, um, and other foods high in omega-3s. Switching from grass-fed beef or, you know, to grass-fed beef from feedlot beef is not going to make any dent in your overall week as far as your ratio of omega-3s to 6s. Um, we did look at antibiotic residue. We did look at um, uh, pest, uh, um, E. coli, you know, was there more E. coli in grass-fed or, or typical beef? We looked at it from every angle we could, and we just weren't seeing a significant difference, um, one that we felt that we could make a, a, a strong health claim on. And this is just us as scientists trying to challenge our own hypothesis and tell the truth. What, what we didn't want to do was to make a gotcha that a, a vegan doctor could go in and look at the data and, and say, well, grass-fed meat's not significantly more nutritious than grain-fed meat. And so it would be an immediate, you know, if you, if you can't get that right, then the whole it rest of calls into question is... all of these other things. And like, we're getting some questions around uh, why is grass-fed fat orange tinted and grain finished almost pure white? Grass-fed isn't always orange tinted. Like I will acknowledge that an animal on pasture, on clover, they might have a different profile going on there. But this is another another thing. Are we going, like we've had all these discussions around scaling and, and supplying a global food system. If we're going to overwinter animals and feed them the, the silage of, of a, a spent, uh, you know, wheat operation or corn operation, they're not on clover for that period, but they're doing some amazing business of upcycling. So this is, in my opinion, an area where the, the regenerative ag scene, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot by having a, a standard that is so both high-minded, but also uh, 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 unattainable in, in some ways, and honestly, not very scientific. Like we operating within the, the parameters of, of science as best we can. Like some of these things like polyphenols, if you talk to the, the vegan back doctors, they'll say that the polyphenols are trying to poison us. So, or sorry, not vegan, but the carnivore doctors are saying that polyphenols are trying to kill us, which I think that that's a whole extreme thing too. But, you know, it, I think that we have a really credible position on talking about 
the nutrient density of meat in general, the ability for it to provide a, a um, satiating, uh, you know, nutritional profile so that we tend to not overeat. Even the worst case scenario meats tend to be highly nutritious compared to any other food that you could imagine. And then if, if you happen to have access to meat that is massaged by the Dalai Lama and it lived its whole life on clover and you get that, that's awesome. But you know, when, when we are talking about trying to feed a global system, when we're trying to talk about getting better food to inner city families to avert the downward spiral in like social trends and, and health and everything, we, we need to be able to have some, some nuance in that story and, and not make perfection and the antithesis of good enough. Um, yeah, so I just want to address, uh, sorry guys, but the lack of evidence doesn't mean we should say that CAFO meat is virtually the same as grass-fed. So uh, in the book we say, you know, we'd love for this, the evidence to say differently, but this is what the evidence is saying right now. And a true scientist would be evidence-based with their findings. Um, we, you know, there's just not research out there to support a significant difference. There is with dairy, there is with eggs. Uh, eggs with uh, seafood, like wild caught seafood ver versus uh, conventionally raised seafood. But when we're talking about beef that finished on corn versus beef that's finished on grass, there's, I mean, Jason Roundtree did a big study, he had almost 800 samples and the ratios were anywhere from one to one to 20 to one omega-6 to 3. So he had samples of grass-finished beef that was 20 to 1. Um, so we, we just don't consistently see across the board, even with the omegas, which shouldn't even be a big talking point because it's just not a significant... Because like, again, even the ratio, like it's still the magnitude relative to a piece of salmon. It, it, we're talking about a pinky's worth of salmon being equivalent in amount to eight pounds of beef, which yeah. if you want to eat eight, eight pounds of beef, that that's fine. But um, it, it, scientifically, it gets really dubious when we start getting wrapped around the axle of it's like relative ratios. It, it's funny, it starts becoming very similar to some of the statistical uh, chicanery that happens when we do an absolute risk versus relative risk in colon cancer and meat consumption. Mm -hmm. We have an absolute risk background of 5%, uh, you, you know, everybody in Westernized society is developing colon cancer. The vegan back doctors will say that there's a 20% increase in the risk of developing colon cancer from eating meat products. But what that is, is we went from 5% risk to 6% risk. And that's assuming that the data that we get out of these terrible dietary trials are even accurate and worth the paper they're printed on, which I, I concede is probably not the case. But it, it, again, like uh, this is such a thorny topic and we did every goddamn thing we could to try to make this thing fit the narrative that folks like Soil for Climate would like to hear. And I totally invite everybody to, to find a better solution to this than what we did, but actually use science and not opinion. Like it, yeah. it's, it's, it's okay. a thorny topic and we've already been like called out and people angry at us and oh we're shills for for big meat and all the rest of it and we would have had to lie to to have a different story on this yeah and i mean it's sort of like if you were to say this organic carrot has more protein than this carrot that wasn't grown organically it's like carrots are a crappy sort you don't eat carrots for protein you don't eat beef for omegas okay um 
Yeah, I wish I desperately wish it was different, and maybe somebody else will do a, a better analysis of the data. But this was a another thing that we had an independent researcher look at this. Yeah, we actually hired another PhD in in research to go through, and we independently we didn't give them any information. We just said we want you to do the best analysis of the relative nutritional characteristics of conventional meat versus grass fed meat not go crazy. Mm -hmm. And it was identical to where we arrived. So which means either we're all collectively idiots, or there might be a more nuanced story to this thing. So I don't, uh, Seth has uh, this question, what is the omega profile numbers in salmon compared to beef? I don't remember it off the top of my head, but it's off the charts for salmon compared to beef. It's jaw dropping. Yeah. It's, um, it's like on a bar chart, like this high, to this high. Um, so I know it was, I did calculate it out and it was eight pounds. You would have to eat eight pounds of grass fed beef to get the same omega three you could get in a three ounce piece of salmon. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I appreciate you fleshing out, so to speak, uh, the details on the, the grass fed versus grain finish. And uh, I know there's so much interest in this topic. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see what the, the new research shows as, as in the case with so many other things. Mm -hmm. um, we had one comment I'd like to share. This was from Rolf Shenton in Zambia, who said he has seen increases in carrying capacity go from one cow per 10 hectares up to as many as three cows per hectare. So it's a 30-fold increase in carrying capacity. Uh, yeah. Well. We, we go through numbers very conservatively in the book because we're hearing a lot of stories like that. So we worked with um, Alan Williams, Jason Roundtree, and um, Jim uh, Daniela Howells. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, husband, um, I'm forgetting his last name, Jerish. I, I forget. Um, and so we we kind of ran those numbers, and then I ran them by John Eichard. I mean, I, I really tried to flush it out as much as I could, and we went with a very conservative 30% increase. But in but part of the what we tried to triangulate in on that was all the land that is being paid by the government to not use. And then we, we took the cur current land that's being used and we didn't even really account as much for the land that could be rehabilitated. But, but absent even that, we, we made the case that we could at least at a minimum get a, a 30 to 50% bump in, in current produ production. It seemed better to be super on the conservative side with that then to make some of the, you know, if it ends up being five or 10 X, then that's great. We were super, super conservative as it is the implication, the numbers that we cite as it is makes the case that we can produce enough food for a global population, even at our conservative numbers. But again, we were really trying to do this in as, as scientifically defensible way as we could, because again, if you get one of these things really grossly wrong and, and somebody either from our camp or a, a different camp wants to discredit what we're up to, then it's very easy to do. Yeah. And we don't argue beef for everybody everywhere too. It might look like, uh, you know, goats, goats and camels. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and so our, our argument is that animals are important to regenerative agriculture, grazing and browsing animals, and it needs to be adapted to the specific context. I know the folks at the project drawdown team took a similar approach. They aired on the conservative side. Uh, just because they wanted to make the argument as absolutely watertight as, as possible. Yeah. Uh, I know Seth had a question, and uh, and then I had one other one. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, Seth was wondering if you could maybe share some of the 
have a chapter titles in your book to give people a, a little bit more of a sense. Do you want to do it or you want yeah, me to do it? Topics that we get into. And um, we also have a, a quick reference guide, actually. That's um, super cool. That you might find more interesting. And that's on page seven. So we, we, we took all the common questions and told you exactly your choose your own adventure version to where to go in the book to find it. So, so here's what we answered. Do vegetarians live longer than meat eaters? Page 61. Will eating meat increase my chances of cancer? Aren't we eating way too much meat? How much protein should I eat? Is grass-fed healthier than typical beef? Isn't it possible for me to get all my nutrients from plants? Are lab meats and hydroponics a good way to grow food? Don't cattle emit too much methane? How do cattle sequester carbon? Doesn't it take 12 pounds of grain per pound of beef? Don't cattle take up too much land? Don't cattle drink too much water? Why eat animals if I can only survive on, if I can survive on only plants? Do we have enough land to uh, produce the demand for grass-fed beef? And then finally on, if you want to just be told exactly what to eat for uh, human and planetary health, you jump to page 247. I could have just asked you those questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, terrific. Uh, so um, perhaps a, a, as we get toward the, the end of our discussion, um, one of the questions that uh, perhaps is on uh, a number of people's minds um, is, is what can be done about changing the USDA recommendations? Uh, I know that the dietary guidelines are under review presently. I don't know what the exact current status is, but um, it, perhaps what can viewers do as a whole? What can the soil for climate community do to, to help advance that discussion? And Yeah. We really need to work to get more and more sovereignty at the local level, like the things like the Prime Act, um, buying locally. It's all trite stuff, but uh, so much of this problem it, it starts emerging as you centralize power further and further away from where we all are. Then it's super easy for some either nefarious or or possibly well-intentioned but ignorant, you know, entities to make decisions that negatively impact our, our lives, our health and the, the global food system. And it's a, it's a very not popular topic right now, like pushing this notion of, of uh, you know, federalism and, and getting more power at the state and, state and local level. But, you know, even just this processing story of being able to process in a, a local scenario and, and have it happen in a seamless process, that would be a huge step forward for improving our, our food sovereignty. Yeah, um, I agree with all that. And then, um, you know, as far as policy on the on the government level, it's not something that's really in my wheelhouse. And I sort of am more in a like, okay, guys, here's how you're going to do it. Not what, what do we need the government to do? I know that um, Nutrition Coalition is really active in reforming the dietary guidelines. That's Nina Teicholz's organization. Um, I just feel so frustrated at that level that I feel like I can make more impact just on an individual level with people and trying to, you know, get the film and book out. So, um, you know, if I can get people to watch this film, if I can get kids because Nick Offerman's in the film and they know who Ron Swanson is from Parks and Rec, if I can get kids to watch this film where we explain the ecological functions of cattle and why the argument is not meat versus plants, but it's actually industrial ag versus 
um, a different type of a system. If they can understand that and it's something that can be shown in schools, in every school that showed Cowspiracy, if, if Sacred Cow could be the film that's shown at least to spark a dialogue, and then maybe at the college level, we have someone working on some lesson plans right now for us for Sacred Cow for um, college professors. We have discussion guides for community groups um, in the works. And so we really just want people talking more and questioning more. And, you know, there's more research coming out constantly that may contradict what we say. And, you know, we as scientists, um, you know, always reserve the option to change our position with new evidence coming out. So it uh, looks like, stick on the Zoom. Oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, anyhow, so the book is um, available for pre-order today. Um, it goes on sale officially tomorrow. Um, anyone who pre-orders the book and submits their receipt to sacredcow.info forward slash book will get a whole bunch of bonuses that we've made for them, plus early access to watch the film um, uh, before it's released to the general public. So the film will be out there on a major streaming platform, but uh, we're still negotiating with distributors right now. And so we don't know exactly when that's gonna happen or where it'll be, um, but it's almost done. And so um, as soon as it's done, I will be sending a link to everybody who pre-ordered the book and submitted their receipt. Bye tomorrow. Awesome. <laughs> That was the deadline, everybody. Just make sure you caught that. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I also wanted to add that uh, there are a number of communities around the United States that are looking to adopt, you know, plant-based uh, menus for uh, events, you know, in different communities and, and or in Meatless Monday programs in schools and so forth. And I have shared uh, your posters for Sacred Cow um, as a terrific resource that people can reproduce and. Um, and distribute uh, to their town council or city council members, that sort of thing. And um, just an idea I had, I, perhaps I heard it somewhere else, I'm not sure, but instead of a plant-based diet, really what we need is a planet-based diet. You know, looking at what, what the earth needs right now, as well as what humans need. Um, and I'm hoping your book and film will both be terrific resources for folks to use in educating uh, their community members as to what diet makes the most sense, you know, and um, anyway, uh, I think on that note, uh, this might be a good time to wrap up. I'd like to thank you both for uh, your time here today, for being so generous with us and for sharing your knowledge and uh, very excited uh, to get my copy of the book and, and to see the movie when it comes out and um, just really can't wait for it. So thank you very much for all the work you've done. Thank you. Thank you. And um, so Seth, I think uh, we'll call that a wrap if you wanted to. Um, uh, close the live stream at this point. I think that would be an opportune thing to do.